Hi, entrepreneurs. It's Steph here, and I want to be sure you've had the opportunity to reserve your ticket to our Entrepreneurs Founders Weekend for our Wealth and Wellness Retreat presented by Chase Inc. We will be hosting our event at the Ritz-Carlton in Orlando, Florida from May 3rd to May 5th, and you are definitely going to want to be there with us. This is going to be your opportunity to build relationships with some of the most powerful women in business. And I can share with you firsthand that the best business relationships are formed when we really get together in person. And I just know so much business magic is going to happen when we're all together. From educational panels, networking activities to wellness activations, inspiring keynotes and breakout sessions. This is going to be a weekend you are not going to want to miss. So you can reserve your ticket today over at entrepreneurista.com forward slash founders weekend. We only have a few tickets left, so be sure that you reserve yours today. That's entrepreneurista.com forward slash founders weekend. I cannot wait to see you there. They're in a position of privilege. Their responsibility is to meet with every potential fund manager out there. I feel like my responsibility is to meet with every single possible founder I can meet with. And, you know, you need to give everyone a shot. Everyone needs that opportunity for access to capital. And that's a broken system. It's an old system that started, you know, with George Washington during like slaveholding days. And it's a real problem. And so I think women are going to change it. I think minority led funds are going to change it, but um, we need to like blow up the system. Jesse Draper is the mother of three boys and a founding partner of Halogen Ventures. Focused on early stage investing in consumer and technology companies with at least one female founder. She's a fourth generation venture capitalist and a fierce advocate for investing in women, recognizing the opportunity for technology and innovation to solve some of the biggest issues facing women and families today. Coming up, the early days of Jesse's experience simultaneously navigating an acting career and a budding interest in tech. The thought process and insights behind building her Valley Girl show and the learning lessons from her experience. Jesse's process around finding the right female-focused investments. She shares her perspective on the best way to get the attention of a VC. And finally, Jesse's early struggle with being taken seriously and how her confidence has evolved over time. This is the Entrepreneurista Podcast, presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done. And what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram. With no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. Jesse, we are so excited to finally sit down and have this conversation with you. It has definitely been a long time coming. I feel like we know so many mutual connections and people in entrepreneurista world, and we're really excited to have this conversation and hear all about the venture capital world. I know that you grew up in a family of entrepreneurs and venture capitalists. Did you always know that you wanted to get into this industry? I did not. I think there were a few things happening when I was younger. One was I was the oldest of four children and I was the first girl. And um, my dad was a venture capitalist. My grandfather and my great-grandfather were venture capitalists. And I thought, oh, well, that's what men do. What do women do? And my mom worked incredibly hard raising four children. Um, the hardest job in the entire world. I have three little boys and like, literally, I don't know how she did four. I am done. Um, I have one. And every day at bedtime, I'm like, how do people have more than one child? Like, I don't know how you do it. You could do two, three. My brain doesn't split into three. That's what I realized. Like your brain just doesn't split into it. But my aunt was a sort of successful actress in the eighties and nineties. Her name's Polly Draper. And she was on a show called 30 something. And so as a little girl, you know, they say you can be what you can see. And I was like, that's what women do. I was like eight years old. Like, that's what women do. They are actresses. So I went into entertainment, went to UCLA school of theater, film, and TV. And after that was auditioning, did a Nickelodeon show, was in a bunch of movies. And, um, 
I was like the convoluted path to venture capital. I think I always grew up around people in technology. I would meet startups regularly just from growing up and, you know, internships. And I just was always kind of like in this tech community. And if I brought you back to like 2008, for example, which is like right after I had graduated college, there was no female empowerment movement or hadn't been for many, many years. It was actually the complete opposite. You know, we had like, Lindsay Lohan and Paris Hilton scantily clad on the covers of magazines. I was playing a sexy babysitter on a Nickelodeon show that probably that was called the naked brothers band that probably like, you know, wouldn't have been picked up today because it was like, I mean, my, my outfits, I was basically naked. Oh my God. Um, Wait, what year is this? This was 2000. It was 2000, like seven, six, seven, eight, something like that. It was on for a couple of years. And, um, I then was auditioning and I would go to these auditions and I was just a piece of meat, you know, like I went to one audition. There's like maybe a hundred girls in this room. I'm waiting all day. I've prepared my little script and it was for like transporter two or three with Jason Statham. And he was there with the producers and I like walk in and, um, he's like, turn around, turn around. No, don't speak. (laughs) And I walked out and I realized my, my agent had sent me on this audition with an organization called Charlie's bodies. And I was like, oh my God, they're literally like looking for hot bodies. Like this is messed up. And about the same week I was invited to this Twitter conference and it was the first Twitter conference. It was at the Skirball center in Los Angeles. And I went and it was like the early tweeters, Twitterers um, (laughs) who were famous because they had a bunch of followers on Twitter. (laughs) Like It was like the Kobe beef truck. And like, they were all speaking about how they got a bunch of followers on Twitter. Tony Robbins spoke and it was this tiny room. I feel so grateful to have like been there. He was amazing. And I just remember thinking like, I'm one of only a few women here, but I feel like there's something cool going on here in social media and beyond. And that was this moment I, um, back then, like entrepreneurs were not celebrated. And I always did have this idea, like entrepreneurs will be on the covers of magazines. I idolize them. I've idolized them my whole life, but there wasn't any place for them to be celebrated. So I created this, the first tech talk show. I know it's hard for you guys to believe because now there's quite a few, but it really was the first you can go back. It was like us and beat TV. And we were one of the first video companies to partner with like Forbes and Mashable online and ultimately took the show to TV. We were nominated for an Emmy and that was sort of my own. Then I like built out this tech blog, acquired some companies. Um, that was my own kind of entrepreneurial journey. Anyway, through this show, I was interviewing incredible entrepreneurs like Alexandra Wilkes Wilkinson, who we were talking about before and her partner, Alexis Maybank from Guilt Group. And um, numerous people from first, it was really difficult actually to get women on the show. I was interviewing men for two full seasons and I made this initiative to interview 50% women in tech, because again, bring you back to my eight-year-old self and I wanted more women around me. Um, and I realized I could help with women in technology in two ways. One, by getting them media exposure and two, by funding them. And I didn't have capital, um, but I was running this little like show and company And I'd sometimes say, Hey, you're too early for the show. Love what you're doing. Can I write you a little check or negotiate some sweat equity? And some of these deals were like paperless post. And, you know, I was meeting like the skim girls early on and Jen Hyman from rent the runway. And I was, um, seeing these incredible early stage entrepreneurs who were female and, um, anyway, that sort of catapulted me into, okay, well, what if. I go and raise a fund, like all I know in technology, like I've just lived this for so long. Is it possible? I went and pitched, you know, 300 investors for my first fund and then closed 50 of them. Many of which were my guests on my show, including Alexis Maybank from Guilt Group, Rebecca Minkoff, many, and I'm so grateful to them, but that like helped build my network. And then here I am today, we're going into fund three and we're you know, we have 70 portfolio companies, all female founded. We've had about 10 exits to Twitter, Walmart, P&G, and we're, you know, trying to prove out still that women are, women are the big bet. 
Anyway, that was my long convoluted life story. How are you guys doing? That that was so, so helpful to hear. What was the name of your show? It was called the Valley Girl Show and it was totally silly and fun and ridiculous. And actually for the first five, six years after I like just didn't want to talk about it because I felt like I had put myself in this position like Lindsay Lohan and Paris Hilton, who I was mentioning were kind of scantily clad on the covers of magazines because I'd come off of this Nickelodeon show as like a sexy babysitter. I like dressed all in pink and I called it the Valley girl show and I acted stupid and I painted everything pink and made my guests dress up pink and be silly. And, um, back then I just like to like remind people now Actually, I haven't really reminded people I wanted today. I've decided I'm reminding people. <laughs> Let's do it today, right here Let's on the show. Right here. Um, I never talked about this. It's really hard for me to talk about, but um, the tech press was so mean to me. They tore me apart. I was a girl doing something really different and I was torn to pieces in the New York Times, in Wall Street Journal, in Valley Wag. It was like I was like a 23 year old doing something cool. One of the early bloggers. And I really haven't spoken to a lot of those tech press who now are super famous today as some of the biggest reporters in the world, because they were so mean to me. They discredited everything I had done. And I remember walking away from one of my sort of last interviews with TechCrunch at one point and being like, I don't want to talk to them anymore. Like, this is awful. Like I'm doing something cool and they're just being assholes and they just hated women. They wanted women to just lose. And, um, it took a lot of confidence and confidence building to like, get me through that period of time. And then, um, I kind of switched careers for, I think a multitude of reasons, but it was difficult to be taken seriously at first because I had been this kind of like pink fluffy girl at conferences. And it gave me an incredible it built an incredible network for me. And I did find a great community and in technology, everyone is welcome. You know, women, men, age doesn't matter. Diversity is so important. And I just love the community I'm in now, but I think that was such a tough time for women. How did you handle those moments when you would, you know, pick up the paper, go online and see that there was an article written about you that was crushing. Like, how did you keep going in those moments? Like, were there certain things that you told yourself, a support system? Because so many entrepreneurs deal with a lot of these, you know, ups and downs in business and, you know, being discouraged, especially I would say, and we'll get into this, of course, in the fundraising process, how hard it is for women and hearing all of those no's, like, how do you get through those times? Well, I think having been an actress, like the no's really weren't what bothered me. It was like the personal attacks, which occasionally I still get on Twitter because all the mean people live on Twitter. Yeah. What is it about? Everyone just hides behind a screen and feels they can just say anything. To I know. And they like to go like, it's just like the instant it's like, they do a quick little, like check up your profile. And then they're like, eh, I don't believe in this, whatever it is. When you're like standing up for women's rights all the time, it's like every once in a while you bump into the like percentage of people, I don't know what percentage that is, but who just like, don't think women should have any rights. And it's like, is this, this is unbelievable. But, uh, I think there were a lot of, you know, I had a really great community of these early stage entrepreneurs and then just friend, like, I have a lot of great girlfriends who know who they are, um, who are professionals who I would sort of like call, um, And, you know, I was screaming for female mentors. I think that was a really difficult thing at that time because a lot of the successful women were, had fought so hard to get to where they were. They weren't willing to like go sort of advise or help like a little pink talk show host. And, you know, I just got through it. And it's funny, I've, it's brought me back a lot recently. I've been thinking about it because I work with this girl also named Jesse, who's um, an intern of mine. And I said, go find all those old articles. Like, I'm just curious, like if they're still around and she always was like this show, it really gave you this platform to like get to where you are today and helped you build everything. And she started reading them and she's like 23, 24. She started reading these articles and she's like, oh my God this would not fly today. Like they are so mean. They're talking about how you look and they're talking about how stupid you are. And they're talking about how your dad's an entrepreneur, like an investor. And that's the only reason you got anywhere. And, you know, I'm aware I came from background of privilege. I think I feel a responsibility to work 
10 times harder constantly because I know that I came from this incredible background that was honestly an education for me. But I think like everyone comes from a different place and that doesn't mean you need to like discredit me. And it's like, my dad didn't come up with a pink talk show. You know, it's like I did. And, um, and those are things like even now telling you guys, I've just decided that it's therapy today. So I'm just sharing today, but it's been really interesting to hear her perspective in today's world where we've been through this female empowerment movement. And like, I'm finally like, you know what, you're right. I should speak about this and I should talk about it because it wasn't always like this. And I actually walked away from like the press there because I was like, I don't want to talk to you guys. You're terrible. Like they played tricks on me. They were like mean. Is that why you stopped the show? No, I stopped the show as any good entrepreneur. I realized media was so broken at the time. It was, you know, Netflix was still sending out DVDs and Blockbuster had started doing that. And it was just a really broken time. We had done this deal. I should have stuck with YouTube um, for the show, but I kind of couldn't because I was on a Nickelodeon show when I started it. And Nickelodeon was owned by Viacom. And Viacom was in a huge lawsuit with YouTube. So anytime I put anything on YouTube, it was like they owned my persona or something and they would take it down. And so I was like, uh, okay, well, I'll get to YouTube when I'm done with this show. Um, and I put little things on YouTube that sort of had nothing, like didn't say anything about Nickelodeon, but sometimes even those would be taken down. It was very weird. And so I did this deal with this company at the time called Indoor Direct. I should see if they're still around but they got us millions of views around the world, but they were like those passive views, like in um, gas stations and fast food restaurants. And then we were on a couple different platforms and um, shows people would like check into their hotel room and be like, your show's on. <laughs> um, so we'd get these millions of views, but it wasn't translating in terms of revenue for us. Like it wasn't really huge revenue. And so I was like, something's broken here. It will be fixed, but it's not fixed today. And we're barely breaking even CBS still owes us money today, which I like to say as much as possible because (laughs) $6,000, I would like it back. Um, Wait, you sound like me. My nickname is Hector the Collector. (laughs) Yes. It was just a really broken system. At that time, I'd been in this for about five years and I was seeing peers of mine, like Brit Marin go and raise for Brit and co and people raise like millions of dollars. And I kind of had bootstrapped the whole thing. So it was hard to grow, but we had thoughtfully grown a little bit, but I was like, I, I know how venture capital works and you have to make this money back many times over. And I haven't quite mastered the business model in five years. Something needs to shift in media. And so I kind of said, okay, I'm going to take a step back and see how this fund thing goes, because I had been working with these early stage companies that had pitched our show And some of those had sold or I'd had some nice little returns. And actually, I really attribute a lot of this to like, you were asking who, who helped me get through it. I have this like lean in group that we had started back then. We're probably the only like lean in group that continue to meet, but we were, it was a group of women. And I remember one of them saying to me, why wouldn't you go raise a fund? Like that makes so much sense. Go raise a fund. And then my husband being like, so your investments are going a lot better than like uh, Valley girl. <laughs> and we're able to pay it for preschool now. <laughs> and I think this is a great idea. And so I sort of attribute that to like my husband and then my lean in group for kind of giving me that little confidence and push. And so then I sort of shifted. That's kind of why I left. And I thought maybe eventually like I'd go back to it. Like I do have people still like the hardcore tech community, like every once in a while brings it up, but it's like, I interviewed like Elon Musk and like I was in Toronto right before the um, lockdown and I was doing this huge event on stage and I was like, wow, this is like the biggest stage I've ever spoken on. And they're like, we're going to have this child prodigy, like interview you. She's 17. She comes up. She's like, did you know you're in the biggest mashup of the stupidest things people have asked Elon Musk? I'm like, so I am so happy you brought that up right before we got on stage and you just crushed me. And I'm sure Elon and I both would like that to be deleted from the internet, but it's well, there. I think you should bring the show back. 
and we'd love to help you do it. <laughs> Post it on Entrepreneur's Day. I think it would be a good way to make a comeback and teach everyone that they were all wrong about you. Yeah, we can do a, we're launching a bunch of new shows under our Entrepreneur's podcast network now. So we can do a, we'll bring back the show on the network. We'll make it all pink and it goes perfectly with our branding. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. I love it. I'm in. Let's do it. It'll be fun. I think you really should bring some version of it back yes, because it, it's redemption, really. And you could do the marketing behind it, launching it. You can show like clips of the articles, like the horrible things that people said. And then it goes to what it like what it is now. And it's like, screw everyone. This, this is it. <laughs> I know it was the most eye-opening having my intern like read them because I sort of have now I'm numb to it, you know, yeah. but like it was, she's like, just see, like, she's like, oh my God. She's like, it's not like, they're all like this. I'm like, yeah, no, they were ter terrible to me. It's very validating hearing that like that. But there was one writer who covered me as a profile in the Sunday um, style section in New York Times, which ultimately like changed my life. And she had actually spent three days with me and she wrote the first sort of real profile piece that was like, you know, real, like it wasn't it was not biased. It wasn't kind or unkind. It was just sort of like straightforward. And that was the, that was, I was like, so grateful to her. I've like actually kept in touch with her and like seen her since, but there were some diamonds in the rough, but it was brutal. It was Valley Wag. It was like the, what was the equivalent? It was like Perez Hilton of Silicon Valley. It was terrible. It's awful. Well, <laughs> you've shown you keep going. You're resilient. You true you entrepreneur. That's all you can do. Hey, entrepreneurs, it's Steph here. As a founder, or really as a woman in business who is creating their own success, whether you're just starting a business or you're scaling it, dealing with finances and money can often feel very overwhelming and intimidating. We have all been there. But according to fellow entrepreneurista and personal finance expert, Varnoosh Tarabi, that fear can surprisingly be very helpful for your future success and wealth. Farnoosh is the host of the So Money podcast and the author of the best-selling book, A Healthy State of Panic. She gets candid about all things finance with leading business experts every Friday on her podcast. And she dives deeper into the nine biggest fears that hold us back both professionally and personally in her latest book, including rejection, loneliness, fear of missing out, and failure, to name a few. She offers a wealth of knowledge and tackles the relatable feelings we all experience about money. So you are definitely going to want to subscribe to her podcast. And if you want to meet Farnoosh live and in person, be sure to join us at our Entrepreneurista Founders Weekend event from May 3rd to May 5th at the Ritz-Carlton in Orlando. Farnoosh will be speaking and she cannot wait to connect with you. You can reserve your ticket at entrepreneurista.com forward slash founders weekend and we will see you there. I want to talk about your first fund. How much money did you raise and what tips did you learn or can you share about raising a fund? So my first fund, I raised 10.4 million and every dollar counted. And I was so happy when it closed. And, you know, in terms of tips and tricks for the first one, I think what you learn when you're fundraising for anything very quickly is how to efficiently qualify an investor. Now I had no idea what an investor looked like and what an investor for my fund would look like in terms of what they were excited by or how much money they had. I mean, it's hard to like decipher how much money people have. And, you know, you're literally meeting with families with lots of money and small institutions and, so I quickly learned I was an emerging manager, um, which means sort of I'm this like riskier fund manager because I'm new. And I thought that I was going to go after like women. Turns out women, one, don't have as much money and two, won't write as big a check even when they do because we are wonderful human beings and we are more risk averse and more real but I always say like, make sure you're putting your money to work because big risk equals big reward. And one of the smallest checks I wrote when I was just starting to angel invest, I sold on the secondary market 18 months later for 26 times return. 
And that was like a huge risk. And it was a risk, by the way, that my husband was like, I don't know, this is an early stage company. Are you sure this is a good idea? And I'm like, I just really believe in the founder. He's an accountant. He used to be very risk averse. And so we're kind of the opposite of a typical male, female relationship, but now he'll be like, maybe you should put more money in that company (laughs) and, you know, make sure you're taking that risk thoughtfully. But, um, so then I went after, you know, more men and women women specifically who had had someone take a risk on them. So that was like entrepreneurs, like I was mentioning the guilt group founders who had had to raise some money and make it back for people and understood how that worked. Because another problem is women feel like they're not as educated or educated enough. And so they're like, they feel like they're not qualified to make that investment. And then once they do, they're kind of like, oh, I'm scared. When can I get it back? And that's frustrating for a fund manager. You don't get it back for 10 years. So it's not liquid, especially at the early stages. And so you really don't want like finicky investors. You want comfortable investors. And so I started kind of learning. I say for anyone out there fundraising, just learn what sort of floats everybody's boat. Like for me, it was people who liked to make an impact. So impact funding, It was people who were interested in certain verticals. And I could speak to a few of our companies, whether that was like e-commerce fashion at the time, or what else did we have in there? Childcare. And, you know, I think also just always learn about them. Just take five minutes to be like, tell me what you're looking for. What's your focus? What are you, you know, your goals this year in terms of investment, and then figure out what you can like latch on to there and where you can come to the middle. And then also I would meet with these people and they just, if you feel like they're like, "Mm, I don't know, let's meet again. And it's six, seven meetings, just walk away. Um, It's such a waste of time. And you can ask in the first meeting, you can say, is this interesting to you? If so, I would love to send you more materials and you can get the answer in the first meeting. If it's even worth moving forward, like truly don't waste your time. Um, the easiest way to do that is I always have a little page at the end of my deck. That's like, and this is what I'm raising. So you don't even have to say it (laughs) because it's there. And so this is what I'm raising. This is what I'm looking for. Is this interesting to you? Do you have a minimum check size? Yes. And it changes every time because the fund gets bigger and bigger Mm -hmm. every time minimums are minimums and are often waived. So everyone kind of knows that it's like, what I do say is like, there's a much larger minimum for institutions. Institutions ask for a lot more and they, you know, just in terms of rights and sometimes even ownership, I sort of like refuse that. But so I say, okay, well, you need to write me a much bigger check. Also, they have a lot more money, but institutions are anything like a university endowment or a pension fund or anything like that. And so I usually say for individual investors, one number, and then for institutions, another number. And then sometimes people are like, well, can I come in? And I sort of say, well, let me keep a list. And then at the end, I'll let you know. How do you decide what companies to invest in and how has that changed over time? And do you still angel invest? I feel like a bad investor if I'm not putting it in the fund, if it's something totally different, like I do try to angel invest in other funds because I'm one of the first female focused funds that there ever was. It was sort of us female founders fund and BBG. And now there's quite a few and we need to build the ecosystem. So if my name kind of helps them, I'll write a tiny check and just help kind of move them along and just. I need them to raise money because I can't invest in everything and I need more. We need to build the female ecosystem. So we need more investors who are women and not necessarily partners at the traditional funds. We need new women starting funds because the traditional funds may have one or two venture partners. It's harder for them to get deals across the table. And we really need to like start it from the ground up, I think. But they're great. We need them there too. Any good VC it, it has to change. Like I would be very concerned if people's thesis didn't change over, you know, many, many years. What hasn't changed is we're still looking for incredible female entrepreneurs. There has to be a woman in the founding team of five, but we always have different verticals we're focused on. We have always been in consumer technology, but we're kind of right now, like we're very focused on future of family and fintech and femtech. And those were 
theses that we've developed over time based on what we invested in, you know, one or two companies we sort of tested the waters with in fund one. And then in fund two, we were like, this vertical is going really well for us. So we should kind of like do a deep dive there. And then you plan your next fund thinking 10 to 20 years in the future. Like, you know, you want to make sure that any fund manager you're investing in or talking to is thinking 20 years in the future. Like, okay, well, childcare is here today. Where is it going to be in 20 years? And is it an opportunity for growth? Because you want your money to multiply in value many times over, hopefully. So it does evolve. And those are the three verticals we're, we're very focused on now. But they change. I mean, the other day I was sort of like, you know, and everyone right now is like crypto, web three. And I'm like, I've been investing in crypto and web three for six years, which no one can say, honestly, like they're all like, I've been like the oldest crypto investor. And I'm like, no, I've been in this space. So I know how it adds value to our portfolio and I'm thoughtful about it. And we're definitely including that in kind of how we think about businesses for the future, but it's more tangential to what we're doing. Many of our entrepreneurs in our community are raising money right now and are looking to learn about the best way to reach out to VCs, potentially you in the future when it's right for them to reach out. What is the best way to get the attention of a VC and specifically you, Jesse? <laughs> well, first of all, we try like access to capital is one part of the system that's very broken. So we actually try to be incredibly accessible. So you can find me on LinkedIn, on Instagram at Jesse C Draper on Twitter at Jesse Draper. And I've taken pitches from all over there. And then you can also just go onto our website and fill out our pitch form, which is probably the best sort of like straight shot. And I have to say, we see so many deals. So don't get discouraged. If you, you know, don't hear from us for a minute, it takes a minute sometimes for us to respond, but we're really trying to get through everything. And then, you know, do your research, like make sure that you are in a vertical. I've just mentioned that we're interested in future family, femtech and fintech right now. Make sure you're in one of those verticals and say, I like to see that you've done your research on our firm and said, Hey, we're female founded and uh, we're in fintech or whatever. We'd love to pitch you and talk to you about investment. And so I'd say that. And then, I mean, I do love the people who just find me. It was harder to say during COVID, but people still could like find me somehow, like in, a, in my inbox or whatever. You're very active on Twitter that I know. Very active on Twitter. I know I go to a dark place on Twitter. I'm like a different <laughs> human being on Twitter because people attack me on Twitter. And I feel like it's like, but on Instagram, I feel like I'm much happier. So I try to like, I don't go on Twitter that much. But there is a There's a supportive community on Twitter. Like if you're in the right spaces, but if yeah. you start like, looking at the broader Twitter can be a yeah. very crazy place. You're like, who? Everyone's on, like, I need to get off Twitter. <laughs> um, we are, I do take pitches there, but I'd say just like, find me. Like I speak at conferences a lot. And if you happen to be in town, I love it when entrepreneurs come to events. One, it shows they're, they're hustling. They're like trying to get out there and meet as many people as they can. I go to accelerator demo days and take pitches. I like to kind of be in the mix. And I love it when an entrepreneur has been emailing me and then is like, Hey, I just wanted to like put a face to the name. I'm not a crazy person. And just FYI, I was pitching you the baby formula company or whatever it is. And I'll be like, oh yeah, that's great. Okay. Well let's talk. So I like it when it's like they're ruthless and they just like, won't give up on trying to find you. Well, that's what makes a successful entrepreneur resilience. Don't take no for an answer, learn from it and just keep going. <laughs> totally. But also in terms of entrepreneurs, something that people don't think about, especially women. And I hate saying this about women, but it is a pattern we've seen just, um, and we have to be very thoughtful about make sure when you are taking funding, you have a plan on how to make it back. You know, that there's two ways to make it back sort of three, but two, it's like you sell your company to someone for a big multiple or you go public. And I think that's really, really important for everyone to know, do not take a check from me or anyone until you have that plan, because otherwise it is, that's not that's not how business works. So you need to make sure that you're thinking, how am I going to make a ton of money? Also, I want to make a ton of money. So that's a and draw. There's, and we talk about this all the time with our community. There's other ways to get funding and financing for your business and going, you know, the venture route. It is very specific. There has to be some type of, you know, 
selling your company with an exit or going public. And if that's not the route that makes sense for your business, like that's okay. You can have a very successful business, you know, running, running a business and making a lot of money and you don't have to necessarily raise. And there's a lot of other funding options that that are out there. And we try to share a lot of those as well. Yeah, actually today we're seeing a lot of our portfolio companies not take traditional VC funding necessarily, like they're figuring out other options. And I think it's also entrepreneurs becoming aware of like how much ownership they lose. And um, so they'll get a credit line to fund inventory or get some venture debt to sit on in case they need more runway. And we're seeing some more of that right now for a multitude of reasons, the market, et cetera. You probably know Karen Khan, the founder of iFund Women. Oh, had she's on. so great. She's the best. She's amazing. And, you know, especially going that route when you're like just starting your business to prove out what you're doing and, you know, start your business that way, not put all of your, you know, startup money on a credit card and crowdfund. So there's definitely other ways. We just started uh, a platform called Pearl Influential Capital, where we're doing SPVs for founders. And we're bringing together influencers who are investing in these brands that they're helping to build. So instead of these influencers getting paid $500, $1,000 free product, we're giving them the opportunity to invest in these brands that they're helping to build, which is then reducing the amount of marketing spend the brand has to spend because they have influencers as, as investors. Yeah, so finding you know creative ways to really help you know bridge the gap, help more women get funded and help everyone make a lot of money. <laughs> Yeah. We've been working with a lot of influencers as well. It's, um, they still like cash though. They still want to be paid with cash. That's what I've realized with celebrities and influencers. They're still learning like the equity element and they get frustrated when they're not getting cash for a little while. And then they kind of fall off in terms of promotion. And so when you guys figure that out, let us know, because that's what we've been trying to figure out where we're like, how do we keep them involved? You know? Yeah. I mean, and We've been doing influencer marketing at Social Fly for a decade now. I can officially say a decade. And what a lot of brands hire us to do is to aggregate more of the micro or nano influencers. And that's kind of the premise of what we're doing, taking small checks from not, yeah, we'll take one from a celebrity, of course, or a mega influencer, but these influencers that have a few hundred thousand followers are accredited investors and they don't have access to these types of deals. It's great. It's great. It's a good plan. So yeah, we can, we'll set up a whole separate conversation. We can show you, show you what we're doing. Cause look, there could be opportunity to collaborate even alongside of some of the, the deals that you're already doing and then help amplify, amplify everything through, through everyone who's investing. So oh, definitely there's so much creativity out there now. And really what we've learned is we all just have to support each other and women helping women. You know, it's why we started this podcast. We want to be able to help everyone and share all these stories and why you started your show many years ago. Right. So oh, completely. Yeah. And we need to change it also. Something mm-hmm. that like is so important to know is I'm a traditional VC fund right now. And I would love nothing more than to blow up the system. Mm -hmm. I have to go pitch these institutions and I'm probably going to lose so many investors by saying this publicly, but I have to go pitch these institutions. They say, we want to get to know you over five to 10 years. And I'm like, well, I don't really want, I'm not going to need you in five to 10 years. And they are so focused on the old caveman days of venture capital and still funding the same traditional venture capital funds um, that have existed since like dinosaurs. And they're not looking to the new emerging managers and they're not thinking disruptively and they're going to lose in the long run. They're going to start losing their returns. They're invest. They're going to start losing their investors because they're not thinking creatively like you guys are. And I think it's something that really, really drastically needs to change. It's basically like 20 advisors manage the majority of the capital in the world. At least 90% of them are in New England. They have no diversity of thought. And even if these institutions are located in different places, they are still letting these people manage their money. And it's a really frustrating thing as a venture fund manager I'm very well connected. I am networked all over because of entrepreneurs. And as a VC, you just have to be very well networked and connecting with people constantly. I'm meeting 20 to 30 new people a week, at least. These guys are sitting on top of their pile of money and they're, they are so inaccessible, even for me. 
And it's like, I can get in touch with and have gotten in touch with like maybe two of them over 10 years. And they are in, you know, a position where they're in a position of privilege. Their responsibility is to meet with every potential fund manager out there. I feel like my responsibility is to meet with every single possible founder I can meet with. And, you know, you need to give everyone a shot. Everyone needs that opportunity for access to capital. And that's a broken system. It's an old system that started, you know, with George Washington during like slaveholding days. And it's a real problem. And so I think women are going to change it. I think minority led funds are going to change it, but um, we need to like blow up the system because it is, it's not working anymore. And the same people are getting the money year over year. And then I go, you know, have to pitch them and it's like dudes booking prostitutes and it's like the wrong, the wrong community, unless you're into that, which I hope you're not. And I don't (laughs) want to work with you if you are. So Anyway, I took a turn, but we need to blow up the system. Yes, we're going to do it. (laughs) That's what's happening. Noted. All right, Jesse, this is a fun segment we love to do. We're going to ask you a few rapid fire questions. The first word or words that come to your mind. Are you ready? Yes, I am ready. All right. How would your friends describe you in three words? Spontaneous, passionate, and a big thinker. What is one item you have in your bag that you can't live without? (laughs) That I can't live without. I'm like, is this, I have a lot of bags. So I'm sort of like, (laughs) I mean, I wish I invested in this company. Oh, the peanut butter. Yeah. You guys are going to laugh because I I keep like, these are my backpacks and my suitcases and my, I just have like tons of them everywhere. I feed my kids with them. I keep them in my back pocket of my jeans. I keep them on my desk because I'm always the individual Justin's packets. Um, I just, I'll be like, like, even now I'm like, oh my God, I I have to eat something. I haven't eaten anything in a minute. And I'll just like eat those between zoom calls or I'm just constantly on the run. So, um, those keep me going when I need a bar or something and I don't have a bar. Yeah. Now I'm hungry. (laughs) Definitely need to snack (laughs) after this. (laughs) I'm preferential to the, um, hazelnut because it's like a little bit, it's a little, it's like a chocolate bar. How do you stop yourself from not eating all of those in a (laughs) one sitting? Well, they're individual. Okay. So. I just, they're individuals. So, so I just eat one and you feel great after one. All right. Next question. Your favorite business tool or solution that you use to run your business. My favorite business tool, my team mm-hmm. <laughs> and my team, but you want like, like I don't know. We tool. Use, yeah. We use affinity for our CRM. And like, that's been really great because we used to track deals in a spreadsheet. And once you're at like thousands and thousands of deals, it's like just inefficient. And so affinity is kind of where we track all of our deals. And that's been a helpful tool because the whole team can kind of go in and say, Oh, Jesse met with them or Jennifer met with them or Ashley met with them. That's been helpful. All right. Affinity CRM. We will check it out. What is your favorite app on your phone? Oh, well, I've been like, I'm testing out all the wearables right now. I'm doing new, but I'm plugging Aura Ring into my new. And then I'm also wearing the Fitbit because I've been trying to see which has a better heart monitor. Hmm. Uh, I think it's the Aura Ring. So I like that new, you can like plug in all your wearables and I'm on this like health kick right now. Cause I just had my third baby and it's like been a year and I'm like, I need to work out and I need to just be thoughtful about my health. So it's sort of like, I'd say it's the trifecta of Fitbit or a ring and Noom right now. All the wearables to stay healthy. I love it. Yes. Yes. All right. Final rapid fire question. Do you have a hidden talent? Oh my God. What did I used to say? I feel like, you know, when you're younger, everyone always asks you that. And you're like, you have one. I can't even think of one off the top of my head right now. Like I'm weirdly flexible. Every time I work out with friends or anyone, I'm just weirdly flexible. I think it's because I used to dance. That's a hidden talent. See, no one would know that about you. Yeah. You got it. There we go. You got it. Okay. I'm, I'm flexible. There you go. I feel like I have another one for you. That's coming up in my next question. Okay. I feel like you are able to manage and juggle a lot. I know you have three little boys, correct? So maybe that is your hidden talent, managing and juggling everything. How do you manage everything and prioritize your day? 
with your family, you have 70 plus deals. So you're clearly talking to so many different business owners all the time. Like, how do you do it all? Like, what are, what are some of the secrets that we can all learn from you? I mean, I can afford childcare. I am aware not a lot of people can, and I feel very lucky and be, but basically my paycheck just goes to childcare. So it's frustrating. And actually our fund is really focused on solving childcare. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at everything in that space. We've invested in great solutions like we care, which has 2,500 in home vetted childcare locations across the country and Brella, which is a childcare location. And then we also have like technology services like Binti that places kids in adoptive mm-hmm. and foster homes. We're trying to solve that because it's just a broken system and it's an underfunded opportunity and we're going to make billions of dollars while investing in it, but we also need solutions, but I have tons of childcare. I always call it like, I don't know how you feel in the morning, but I call it the heart attack of the morning <laughs> where it's like, if I wake up past six 30, I'm screwed. I do not get a shower between six and six 30. I have to feed my kids, make sure that their lunches are packed. And then they always want something like, will you play Uno with me? Sure. I'll play Uno while I'm like making you breakfast and like packing your lunch. Sure. And like, you're sort of like half playing Uno and then like, you know, all you can think about is like, am I able to make an espresso coffee right now while I'm doing this? And just, that would be a great podcast. You should just like interview moms in the morning who are like, (laughs) You know, and there's days like if I wake up past 630, I go downstairs in my pajamas and I didn't get dressed. And so that means I'll have maybe 30 seconds before I have to like run out the door to take my son to school because he goes to school super early. Oh, wait, Courtney, I think you have a solution for Jesse. Oh, please. Oh, yeah, you need a work robe. So moms are wearing these robes. I'm wearing one right now. It's a oh. line of robes for your Zoom calls, but you can also wear them to pick up. So you wear a robe to Ooh. school and it looks like you're wearing a shirt from the car window up. <laughs> I need one of those. I definitely need one of those. I mean, I'm not, you know, a stranger to like wearing a robe to school anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think that's the hardest moment of my day. Honestly, it's like so fun and love being around my kids, but I think it's like, you're just trying to manage so much. And then lately I've been trying to figure out how do you also like have time for yourself? Right. I mean, there's, we're going through this, like mental health crisis too. And I recently realized like, wow, I'm really not, I'm not taking care of myself at all. And so I've been trying to just work out Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1 PM, which seems like such a, okay, I can do that. I'll just like work out and go to work the rest of the day, sweaty, whatever. But it has been this extra stress on me, like where I'm like, okay, I finished this. I have five minutes to get to work out. Then I work out Then I have to hop back on this call. And then it's like, I don't know. I just don't know how we, I think also I like put so much pressure on myself to like do so many things every day. So I'm trying to slow down and be like, you're doing great. You don't have to do 12 things a day. You could do five and you're still ahead of the game, but I basically just need to clone myself. So when I do that, life will be better, but I think it's in it with three little kids, you know, it's brutal. I don't have any like good hacks other than sleep. Yeah. I don't drink during the week at all because then it's just a bad day. (laughs) Yep. I like, and then it's also like, so I don't know, social drinking is always fun. Like on the weekends, I think anyway, Nespresso is like everything to me. I mean, just my Nespresso, I make lattes, I do whatever in my home so I can take them, grab them and go. But, uh, yeah, I have no hacks other than lay out everything Actually, the one thing I do that I started doing for all the moms out there, Sunday night at 5 p.m., I have a calendar alert that says check school emails because I have Mm. two kids who go to two different schools and then I have a baby and there were a million emails. It was like (laughs) the room mom and the teacher and the principal and they all send them different days of the week. And so I just only check school emails on Sunday night and then it helps me prepare for the week to see like what's going on that week. And you don't really need to be like catching up usually with the school emails. It's usually like, okay, if you just read them Sunday night, and then we call it get ready, Freddie. And everyone has to like, get ready for that hour for school the next day. And it's like the kids pack their backpacks and then they pick out what they want for lunch. And so that helps me. Those are such great tips. No, thank you for sharing that. And I think it's super relatable, especially to all the moms out there. Like no one has it all figured out. We all just do the best that we can do every day to survive, keep going and on to the next thing. I also think we put so much pressure on ourselves. Like 
there's weeks that I embrace the idea that 80% of success is just showing up. And, you know, I hate always like comparing ourselves to men, but I mean, I see these guys do pitches without PowerPoint decks or just kind of show up to a call, having done no preparation and like no one questions them about it. For some Mm. reason we're questioned and grilled and we feel like we have to be just on point and everything has to be perfect. And it's okay. If sometimes you just show up, you're doing great. And, you know, I think it's important that women just like relax a little. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, I couldn't agree more either. Thank you so much for spending all this time with us. I would love to schedule a follow-up podcast (laughs) because I have a million more questions for you. But my last question for you is what does being an entrepreneurista mean to you? To me, you know, at Halogen Ventures, we invest in women and being an entrepreneurista is something that I'm so proud of that I don't feel that I always had the opportunity to do because there weren't enough women around me doing it. And so it's something that we should like wave our hands and shine doing. We get to lead great companies and be incredible entrepreneurs who are female. Thank you, Jesse, for sharing your journey and story. We are so excited to stay connected, see all of the incredible things that you will continue to do and also be cheerleaders for all of the women-founded companies that you're investing in. So any of them who are want to join our community too, we're here to be there for them and, and support them. So every step of the way, we will we'll all do more together for sure. Where can everyone find you and follow you and connect with you? Definitely go to halogenvc.com if you want to submit your business plan, or if you are a venture capitalist who wants to join our network, or if you are a potential fellow, that's our annual internship program. And then also I'm Jesse C. Draper on Instagram, Jesse Draper on all the other platforms. Thank you, Jesse. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Courtney. And this is the best business meeting we've ever had. Hey, thanks for listening and leaving us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate it. And we'd love to stay in touch with each of you. You can listen to all of our latest episodes at entreprenista.com and connect with us on Instagram at entreprenistas. We'd also love to invite you to join the Entreprenista League, our private membership community for trailblazing women. You can head over to entreprenista.com forward slash the league. We'll see you there. Wishing you a productive week ahead. Founders are always asking us, what has been the secret to our success building multiple seven-figure businesses? Do you want to know how? It's our community. We created the Entreprenista League for founders like you. Our members have access to everything we've used to grow our businesses over the past 10 plus years. To learn more and get on the wait list for when doors are open again, head over to entreprenista.com. That's entreprenista.com to get on the wait list.